0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning. It is great to be with you. Uh, Just in case you hadn't heard one last time, this is officially our last soft launch Sunday. So this is the last time we're ever going to make mistakes up here. Uh, Aren't you relieved? This is the last time we're ever going to ask for grace. Um, But I am so excited this morning that we are getting closer than ever. You'll notice there's like a whole band almost set up up here. We're getting very close. We've got some lights. The coffee was, is getting better and better out of the coffee bar. We're just inching our game up, and it is a huge thanks, huge thanks to countless volunteers who are probably sitting right next to you in the service this morning who have built Ikea furniture they did not expect to build. They like we're standing around and then just told to do things. They've cleaned bathrooms, they've vacuumed this theater stage. There's still boxes lying around that we are going to make them clean up afterwards. So could we just for one quick second give a round of applause to all our volunteers? I've been so encouraged. It feels like Victory Gardens Theater is more and more becoming our home and it has been so fun these last 4 weeks to journey together. I know a lot of you are new, a lot of you are just starting to get settled in and check us out. So thank you for being with us and in a moment, I will tell you more about what's coming up next week. But before we get to that, I'm here to talk to you this morning about friendships and relationships. And I recently saw this article uh, that is actually from the year 2006, so it's a little old, and the New York Times pop up again. And this will be relevant to some and not relevant to others, but how many of us find it is harder to make friends after 30 than we were expecting anyone can I get just some like amen in the room okay if if you're not there yet let me explain uh this article highlighted I thought a wonderful story Uh, the writer's name is Alex Williams over at the New York Times and he said you know I was at this work function and at this work function I met this person and immediately we hit it off and then this person and their wife and me and my wife agreed to get dinner and we're at dinner and we're talking about Bob Dylan songs, we're connecting, we realize we're watching all the same shows, uh, we're into the same sports team, we grew up miles away from each other. It was the most amazing connection you could ever possibly imagine, that if I was in my 20s, I thought to myself, this man would be one of my best friends. The problem was that I was in my 40s, and so over the next five years, we saw each other a total of three times, (laughs) right? This is unfortunately what happens. The older you get, uh, the busier life becomes, the harder it is to sort of settle in and to connect in relationships and friendships. And if you right now are in your 20s, and you're connecting with lots of people, and you find friendships really easy, which I would guess is probably only a few people, few extroverted people here— Uh, I have some bad news for you. (laughs) As you keep going on in your life, it unfortunately gets harder and harder and harder to make deeper and deeper friends. And sometimes the reason why is because we look around and we think to ourselves, man, my friends are kind of needy. Does anyone want to connect to that? Uh, Sometimes we look around and realize, my friends are a little disappointing. But probably the worst realization is when we look around and realize, you know, I'm actually pretty needy (laughs) and pretty disappointing as a friend. Like, I bailed again. I couldn't go to that thing. I wasn't able to show up. I've got too much going on. This is the struggle of friendship. So this morning, I wanted to talk with you through a person in the Bible. We're going to go back to the Old Testament, uh, back to the book of Samuel. We're going to look at the person of Jonathan, who the Bible actually highlights one of the few prime examples. There's a couple of them across the scriptures, but Jonathan is this image, this picture of what a true friend could be, and so I want to sit with his story. I'm going to talk to you this morning about the character of Jonathan. So who was Jonathan that made him such a good friend? I'm going to talk about the covenant of Jonathan. You see where I'm going with these C's, and then eventually I'm going to talk about Christ and Jonathan, what difference Jesus makes to the friend that Jonathan was. So let's dive in. If you have a Bible, you can open up on your phone. We'll have it up on the screen. We're going first to 1 Samuel 14, and I want to give you a little bit of context before we get into the character of Jonathan. So it's sort of hard to go back in Israel's story pre-David, but before David shows up, um, Israel is, is this tribe Uh, They are surrounded by enemy nations, but really the enemies surrounding them are kind of this mishmash coalition of different tribes known as the Philistines generally. And these tribes were very antagonistic to Israel. It was in their interest not to let Israel sort of rally and unify as a people. And yet because Israel was so surrounded, so suppressed, uh, one of the things that the people of Israel did is they said, we need a king. We need a king. If we get a king like everybody else, then we're finally going to be able to take on our enemies. And so Israel finds this tall, handsome man named Saul, who they thought to themselves, "Ah, Saul looks like he'd be good in a fight. (laughs) And so they pick Saul, say, this guy should be our king. And unfortunately, all of 1 Samuel is kind of this sad, tragic exploration of how Saul, the person Israel picked, wasn't actually a good king, but David, the one coming, was. So if you're standing between these two characters, the really intriguing moment that happens in 1 Samuel 14 is that we're introduced not to Saul, but to Saul's son, Jonathan. You tracking with me? So Jonathan is the prince. He's the son of the king. And while Saul, we've been given some signs, is a little bit disappointing, there's this amazing story of Jonathan that you may not have spent much time with in 1 Samuel 14. So I'm going to take you there right now. Uh, This is verse 1. This is how the scene is set. The narrator kind of throws us into it. They say, One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. So the first thing I just want to observe about this moment is that the Philistines are kind of surrounding. Saul is this new king. He's trying to solidify his rule, he's trying to prove himself to the people of Israel. And it's not Saul who steps up, but it's actually his son, Jonathan who demonstrates inordinate courage. The first thing we see in the character of Jonathan is his courage. The Philistines are all around, and Jonathan says, I am going to step into this gap. I'm going to step up, and I'm going I'm to see what happens. Let's go, he says to his armor-bearer, let's go see what we can do. Um, I think, if we think about our friends for just a moment, I think courage might be one of the most valuable aspects that we often don't look for in our friends. I've been thinking about courage. Uh, What what does it mean? How would you identify someone of courage? I can give you uh, one quick example I've seen in my life. Anyone here who has run a marathon, Anyone, you can raise your hand. You have courage. (laughs) I admire your courage. Uh, If you've run a marathon, it it takes a certain amount of courage to say, I'm going to just do this. I'm going to step up. I'm going to put my body through this. Um, Anyone here have higher education, a master's or doctorate of some kind, courage. Uh, Well done. Uh, It is expensive. It is challenging. It is difficult. And yet someone who does that says, I I have courage. You should be their friend. Uh, Final thing, just from experience over the last few years, has anyone here had a child, born a child through their body? Courage. Uh, I can explain it to you later, but it is a lot of courage uh, if you've had a child. This is who we should be looking for. We should be looking for the courage of Jonathan that's willing to step into this gap. Now let's see how this courage keeps going. This is now verse 6, just jumping ahead a little bit. Jonathan said to his young armor-bearer, "'Come, let's go over to the outpost of these uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few.' The armor-bearer replies, "'Do all that you have in mind. Go ahead. I am with your heart and soul.'" Jonathan continues. Jonathan says, Come on then, we will cross over towards them and let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. Okay, so if courage is where Jonathan starts, you kind of see this courage driving him in here. second C I'm going to give you is the commitment of Jonathan. The commitment. Now, I want to take you back to verse 6 where I slowed down. Notice as Jonathan is doing this very brave thing, he's going up to an outpost of the Philistines. He wants to get into the action. He's just showing up. He, he actually doesn't have a plan yet at this point. So maybe a strike against Jonathan. You know, some courageous friends, if you have them in your life, don't always know what they're doing when they go to do something. But as he shows up, what is quickly identified is Jonathan's commitment to the Lord. Notice how he frames his vision for this moment. Let's go over to this outpost. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. This is verse six. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. And then he says, Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Perhaps. Uh, I love that what we see here is Jonathan is so committed to God that he believes God is going to save in this moment. I don't know what that saving looks like. And yet the commitment is so real for him that Jonathan goes to the extreme of saying, perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf, but no matter what the Lord does, the Lord will save in this moment. I saw one theologian who called this sort of brilliant insight by Jonathan and his commitment, the brilliant insight that he is going to do something, he's he thinks the Lord is going to show up, but in freedom, Jonathan says, perhaps, perhaps the Lord will do exactly, will meet us here in this moment, as much as I'm hoping. A theologian called this the great perhaps of Jonathan. The great perhaps. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf, preserves the freedom of God, and yet the perhaps also, did you know? notice, uh, the perhaps sort of presses God into action. Don't you love how Jonathan in his commitment is like, I'm doing something, Lord. Like, I'm moving. Like, perhaps, like, you can do whatever you want, God, but I'm over here at this outpost, and so perhaps the Lord. Um, I love that Jonathan is modeling here in his commitment what a dynamic, flexible relationship with true pursuit looks like. I believe the Lord is going to save. Perhaps he will act. Lord, do what you will, but here I am. I'm moving into this gap. Um, I recently had a friend go through a job transition. Uh, This happens quite often. I'm sure many of you have friends, or you yourselves have gone through job transitions. You know what a tumultuous thing it is. The only difference in this job transition is that this friend has been looking for a new job, has been complaining about his old job for six years now. Let me just say that again. Six years. (laughs) We have been walking with this friend as he's been frustrated, as he's been annoyed, as he's been irritated— and yet, beautifully, in the last three months, uh, this friend has had all kinds of things click into place. This new job opportunity that makes perfect sense has opened up. He's moved into it. And as we just recently were together reflecting, like, wow, six years. You've really been complaining for six years. Uh, but we've been looking together, and this, this is so exciting. He, he said, you know, it, it's almost like the Lord knew exactly when I needed this new job, right? Th- this is the great perhaps. So for you this morning, even as we're thinking about friendship, I just pause in this moment because it's such a beautiful insight from Jonathan. Where are you right now caught in the great perhaps? Do you have faith for the great perhaps when it comes to what you are looking for with the Lord? When it comes to what you're walking with other friends through, is there room for a great perhaps? Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Jonathan, in his commitment to the perhaps, kind of goes all the way towards the classic sign. Uh, I know if we had an honest conversation, many of us here have done the Gideon fleece, right? Like, Lord, if it's dry, (laughs) I will go one way. If it's wet, I will go another. Uh, Jonathan kind of sets God up this way, too, that he's like, I'm going to show up to this moment. And if the soldiers say, stay there, then God's not in it. We'll, We'll wait. But if the soldiers invite us up, then we'll know the Lord has given them to our hands. Now, I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend this as a battle strategy for yourself, um, but this is, this is Jonathan's commitment. And so let's continue the story. This is now verse 11. Both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outposts, right? So these are soldiers stationed. This is the prince of the king. All the hope and future is riding on this person. He goes alone with his armor bearer to a Philistine outpost, and he just shows up. "'Look,' said the Philistines, "'the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes "'they were hiding in.' "'The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan "'and his armor-bearer, "'Come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson.' "'So Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, "'Climb up after me. "'The Lord has given them into the hands of Israel.'" Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. Now that's all very militaristic and violent. Don't get too distracted by that. Uh, What we see here in the final moment, if you can give me one final C, is constancy. Constancy been sort of dwelling on this word. I know it's an old sounding word, and I know it's somewhat similar to commitment, but but track with me here. Jonathan has courage. Courage is what motivates him to just step into the gap to do something. He then has commitment. He sees God and says, in the great perhaps, I'm so committed to God and God's so committed to me, I'm going to step into this gap. I'm going to create an opportunity for God to do something. But then the constancy is is where Jonathan follows through. It's where he continues to the end. He shows up not only saying what he's going to do, but then he does what he says he was going to do. Here's the problem. I think for most of us, our friendships on that spectrum have a little bit of courage and a little bit of commitment, but for many of us, the thing we're so desperate for in our friends is constancy. The sense that even when things get really hard, even when it becomes challenging, even when we're not that fun to be around, right? Even when we fail to follow through and we don't show up and we bail last minute because life has become overwhelming, when we're complaining again about that job that just hasn't let up. Constancy, a friend who says, I'm here, I'm with you, I'm following through. Even if this is terrifying, even if this is difficult, even if this is going to get harder and harder before it gets any better, I am with you. What I notice here is that the commitment of Jonathan to God is not only for Jonathan, but it's also for his armor bearer. Did you catch how the armor bearer, in sort of seeing Jonathan's character, is so moved by it, the armor bearer basically says, listen, I'll, I'll go where you go. I'm with you, Jonathan. Uh, the constancy of Jonathan, Jonathan charging the hill, being the first one up, is what inspires the constancy of his armor bearer. Have you ever seen this in relationships in your life? Like when friends start showing up for you, you want to show up for those friends, don't you? Constancy begets more constancy. Commitment expands more commitment, which really draws us to the problem, I think. And that's that most of us, if we're being honest, are kind of stuck with our friends not being all that we want our friends to be, because if we're being honest we are not the friends (laughs) our friends need us to be, to provoke their courage, to provoke their commitment, to inspire their constancy. So we're kind of caught in these either downward spirals with friends, where like us not being a great friend kind of inspires them to not be a great friend, and then our disappointment begets their disappointment. Or, or it's possible, what this story shows us, gives us this trajectory of is, if you begin to invest, if you begin to pursue, if you began to be the constant one for your friends, would you see their constancy, commitment, and courage begin to arise? Beautifully, at the end of the story, we find that Jonathan's commitment to God means that God shows up. This is verse 15. Panic strikes the whole army those in the camp and field and those in the outposts and raiding party. And the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God later on at the end of the chapter. So on that day, the Lord saved Israel. And the battle moved on beyond Beth-Avon. Now, I'm not going to get too bogged down in this, but it's kind of fun. If you want to go back and read the end of 1 Samuel 14, essentially these 20 soldiers who fall before Jonathan and his armor bearer are so kind of disorienting that the other tribes of Philistines begin panicking, fighting each other. There's sort of earthquake that happens. All the armies get provoked. Israel then kind of steps in. And not only now does Jonathan and his armor bearer inspire a victory for Israel, actually they were, were told there were 600 soldiers sort of camped there trying to figure out what to do. What happens in the next chapter is all of Israel begins to rally to Saul because of the courage Commitment and constancy of Jonathan. It's possible that if you begin investing in your friends, you will see a reverberating impact that spreads out across not only your life, but their lives as well. Yet yeah, here's, here's the fun twist. Uh, so far, I've been talking about Jonathan. I'm sure at this point, if you're like me, you're thinking to yourself, man, I could use a Jonathan. Like, can you tell me where to find Jonathans out here in the city? Like, a Jonathan would be really helpful. I want a friend like Jonathan. But here's what's kind of interesting when it comes to the Bible telling us about Jonathan, it doesn't hold Jonathan up as the person we should want to be friends with. It actually shows us what an amazing friend Jonathan is to David. So I'm going to take you to this one other passage in 1 Samuel 18. This is the one that popped up in our scripture reading this morning. This is a, a passage you've maybe seen or heard before. It's, it's very intense. It, it's almost surprising. And I want to explore with you why this is, is so intense. But with the background now of Jonathan's character, it will make it even more striking how committed Jonathan is to David. So here's what we find. This is 1 Samuel 18, 1-4. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David. And he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic, even his sword, his bow, and his belt what's going on here, right? All of a sudden in this moment, we like blink for a second and jump a few chapters forward. And Jonathan, the Jonathan, the prince of the king, the one who demonstrated all this courage, whose impact was you know, reverberating across Israel. The Jonathan is coming up to David and says, I love you as my son. I want to make a covenant with you. I am committed to you. In fact, I want you to have my robe, my sword, my crown, my ring, Why is Jonathan so moved by David? Well, if you glance back, if you had a physical Bible to just look briefly at, uh, the chapter before we find this passage about Jonathan making his commitment, his covenant with David, is the story of David and Goliath, right? This is 1 Samuel 17. In 1 Samuel 17, we find David, this young shepherd from a sort of nobody household step into a gap, right? No one's facing Goliath at this point. Goliath, if you remember the story, is sort of challenging the king, challenging all of Israel, saying what cowardly people the Israelites are. And David steps in and says, "Who? who is this guy? Let's go. Let's, let's do something about this, like courage. And then David says commitment. He's like, listen, the Lord is going to fight on our behalf. Like, let's, let's face this one. I've fought lions and bears, and the Lord has saved me before. Let us step in and face this one. And then Constancy, David steps up to Goliath and as everyone's gathered there, David is gonna proclaim before this whole field. It's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, but the battle is the Lord and he will give all of you into our hands. David is this inspiring tower of faith, which is interesting because I think what we find in, in this passage that's starting to make a little more sense is that Jonathan sees in David those traits of his character that he wants to be more of. And he's so moved by this person that he's just encountered, he's willing to say, ah, I'm in. Let's do this together. I want to offer all of myself to you. In fact, I think it specifically was David's passion for God and David's passion for a greater kingdom that inspires the prince, right? If you just hold the politics, the sort of intrigue of what's going on in this moment, Jonathan is the heir to the throne and he chooses to give to David all of the signs and emblems of his princedom. He takes off his robe. He gives him his sword. All these would have been signs that said, you deserve the kingdom. Now, I think the only reason Jonathan would do that is if he saw in David a better kingdom, a bigger vision, a greater passion. And so this, this here, then, is my very practical piece of wisdom for us. If you are struggling with friendship, or if you are wondering, where are next-level friends in my life? Why haven't I found a next-level friend? I think the challenge is, you can't find a friend if all you're doing is looking for a friend, <laughs> okay? So it's like, if all you want is a friend, and you go to people saying, will you be my friend? <laughs> They're going to say, I think I want a different friend, (laughs) right? Uh, There's actually two great, great pieces of writing on friendship uh, that I was looking at again this week. One is The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis. Maybe you've read that one on friendship. I've quoted it before. I'm going to give you a little bit from it again in just a second. The other one's this essay by Ralph Waldo Emerson that I stumbled on. It's apparently like a classic on friendship. I had some time to read through it. Emerson has this great line where he says, the best friends are the friends who look at each other and say, do you see the same truth? Isn't that kind of a poetic line? You'd expect nothing less from Ralph Waldo Edmerson. He says, friends look at each other and say, do you see the same truth? You catching that? So it's like Jonathan is looking at David and he sees what David's just done and, and David has probably heard reports of what Jonathan's done and Jonathan says, do you see that same truth? The great, perhaps, moving into the gap, like seeing that the Lord could act on our behalf. Um, Here's what C.S. Lewis says, and I, I think this is brilliant. Friendship arises out of mere companionship when two or more of the companions discover that they have in common some insight or interest or even taste, which the others do not share, and which till that moment each believed to be his own unique treasure or burden. The typical expression of opening friendship would be something like this. What? You too? I thought I was the only one. You too? You too see that same truth? You too feel moved by that same passion, that same value, that same vision? You see what I have been longing to see? Lewis uh, says, friends are even deeper than those who are lovers, if you can go with him here for just a second, because lovers face each other. If you are around anyone who's falling in love, who's going through courtship, who's dating, who's moving towards marriage, they're staring at each other. They're obsessed with each other. They look into each other's eyes. The rest of the world, we don't matter to them. It's just, you know, right here between the two lovers. But Lewis says, when you look at friends, the reason why friends are so inspiring is because friends actually stand shoulder to shoulder, they're looking out together, and it's because they're both looking at something bigger than themselves. That's what inspires friendship. Now, a lot of friendship can be quite superficial. This principle can apply on very super, superficial friendship. So if I were to ask you, who are you rooting for Today in the Green Bay Packers versus the Chicago Bears. I'm sure friendships could be established, as well as enemies, quite quickly, uh, with the person sitting next to you. This also happens with art and entertainment and movies, right? What's one of the easiest ways to connect with somebody? Well, have you been watching that recent television show? Did you go see that movie this summer? Uh, These are the superficial ways we're kind of like cheaply trying to see smaller truths together. I think what's so moving about Jonathan and David and the vision that I wanna encourage you with is that if you are looking for a profound friendship, the most profound friendships see the biggest truths, right? They actually are inspired and passionate about pursuing something bigger than themselves. So if you are are wondering right now, like "Where, where do I find some next level friendships? My encouragement to you is not to focus on the friends, but to focus on the vision, to focus on the truth to see it more and more and more, to get more and more and more passionate about it, to post about it, to talk about it, to share with others the truth that is inspiring you. All of us want to find a friend who inspires us to love what that friend loves. What if you could be a Jonathan? What if you could be a David who is seeing something so great and who is stepping with so much courage and commitment and constancy That before you know it, you'll look around and find others have gathered to you because they want to pursue that same truth with you. Now, if this is the invitation of friendship, I just want to end on one last practical acknowledgement. I think as as hopefully moved as you are by that, every time I read C.S. Lewis, I get so inspired to want to go so big with my life, and yet, unfortunately much as stated before, even the beginning of this teaching, there is a problem that I keep returning to. And the problem, unfortunately, is that I, myself, often fail to be an inspiring friend, right? The problem is, the reason why more of us don't have Jonathans around us, the reason why more of us are not Davids, is because it's actually, it's, it's kind of crushing to try to be courageous and committed and constant all the time in fact if any of you are like me i think one of the great struggles is that i'll like put everything into offering friendship to one person and then for whatever reason they move right or they get a new job or they transition and then you're just like so disappointed and crushed and tired (laughs) from having trying from trying to be so passionate about that truth that you find yourself in sort of a fatigue going, I, I don't know if I can keep doing this. This is why it's so hard to make friends in your 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s. It's because it's hard. It's tiring. It's actually quite crushing to try to be a Jonathan to other people's Davids. I mean, this is, this is what's so heavy Uh, We are the disappointment with ourselves. We are the reason why we can't make deeper friends. We ourselves are not the friends we want to be. So let me end with some good news for you. It's good news that for the deep longing for friendship that God has put in our hearts, for the deep yearning to see what Jonathan is sharing with David take place in our own lives, God knows we are not on our own capable of powering up or living in or boldly, courageously killing Goliaths left and right across our lives. And so instead, God came himself, and I'm going to take you to that scene at the table with his friends, the scene that we're just about to celebrate again together as we celebrate every week. At the scene, Jesus is going to actually look around him at this table With 12 before him, one is about to leave and betray him. Yet even so, he says to them, tonight, I want you to know you are no longer my servants, but instead, I call you my friends. And as you think about who Jesus was, uh, we often hear, if you spend any time in sort of Bible theology circles, you'll hear one of the beautiful observations is that Jesus is the greater David. So you you look at David, and David's very inspiring. He does a lot of things right. David obviously does a lot of things wrong, too. Uh, But as you look at the king that David will be in Israel's story, what's so powerful is to realize, man, Jesus is even greater than David. Jesus takes David's faithfulness, his dedication, his love for God, and Jesus is the greater David. But here at John 15, I think what we discover is that Jesus is also the greater Jonathan, Jesus is going to look at this table and say to them, everything I have learned from my father, I've made known to you. And of course, what does Jesus do? He gets down on his knees. He begins to take their feet and he washes them. We find with courage that Jesus leads them to the Garden of Gethsemane where he's going to ask them as his friends, stay, stay awake, pray with me. Then with commitment, Though many opportunities arose for him to flee or turn back or run, Jesus is going to say, It is not my will, but yours, Lord, that be done. And then finally, with constancy, Jesus will go to the very end. In fact, one of the beautiful things Jesus says right before this verse in John 15 is love has no greater one than this, a person who would lay down their life for their friend. I think the the final relief this morning, if you are longing for a next level friendship, is that instead of you having to become Jonathan, or you even having to become David or someone else, you are going to be you, and as you are you, you can experience the good news at this table that Jesus has already been the greater Jonathan for you. He is the true friend Jesus is the one who, with courage and commitment and constancy, has offered his very life for you. And here's the really good relief about Jesus being the true friend that each of us are are actually deeply, desperately longing for. Because Jesus is our friend, Jesus is actually going to be the one who can inspire you to be more courageous, can can provoke in you, can start to stir your commitment. As you see Jesus in this act of friendship, as he's down on his knees, as he he walks through fear and trials, as he offers himself in commitment to God, the closer friend you are with Jesus, the better friend you will be to others.